Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate you leading us tonight. <clears throat> Good evening, everyone. Good to see you out for study tonight. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We want to look at verses 20 through uh, 26 tonight. An honorable vessel. I could have prolonged the title and, and said an honorable vessel versus a dishonorable one. Uh, I know you all want to be honorable vessels, right? <laughs> That's right. Indeed we do. <clears throat> okay, well, let me uh, pray, and then we'll get into our study here. Lord, again, we thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for the privilege to gather together in freedom to study and for the place you've blessed us with to study as well. So uh, we thank you for your living word. Now minister to our hearts as we study together. Give me grace to teach. And uh, Lord, as we share uh, what you're, how you're working in our hearts as we have our prayer time, our prayer requests, uh, our sharing time, bless that as well. Also the other meetings. Uh, Awana Youth Group, thank you for all the workers. Thank you for all those that are there for the ministry of the word. Use it for your glory. We commit our evening to you. May it be profitable for Jesus' sake. We pray in his name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, well, you note on the overhead, the, the theme here is uh, loyalty, a, a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And we have worked our way down to uh, chapter 2, uh, charged to be strong in, in uncompromised service. Really, uh, Paul is sharing his heart very deeply at this point. It's his last letter. I don't know if he knew it was going to be his last letter or not, but it turns out it was. And, uh, you know, we often say last words are important words. Not always, but I think if you know they're your last words and you're cognizant of what's going on, you know, you're, you're lucid, uh, probably important. You're probably going to say something that's very close to your heart. We see that in 2 Timothy. Uh, Paul is an old man, uh, basically on death row at this point, awaiting execution, and he's very concerned about the truth. We find it in every chapter here, a real emphasis on his passion for God's truth. And then his concern that Timothy be faithful to the truth. I mean, he has mentored Timothy, he calls Timothy his son. He's very concerned that uh, the truth continue on through uh, Timothy. And so... Uh, we note in chapter 2, that's where we are, in verse 15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. Who's God going to say, well done? Who's he going to approve? Well, uh, rightly dividing the word of truth, as he says here. Not, uh, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Again, truth, very con uh, he's very concerned about it, and that it be accurately dispensed, that we uh, cut it straight, that we... Tell it like it is, without compromise. And so he's very concerned about that. And uh, then in contrast to this, he talks about uh, these false teachers uh, who uh, have strayed, and uh, their, their word spreads like a cancer, if you will. And he's very concerned about this. <clears throat> and then you wonder if, if these teachers who are not teaching accurately, are they even saved? Well, I think verse 19 is a great answer to this. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of Christ, really older manuscripts, the Lord, everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. This is really should be the defining sign of, of those that really belong to the Lord. But the Lord knows. The Lord knows uh, those who are his. Well, he now is going to develop uh, the contrast between the God-pleasing uh, teacher 
and the false teachers. And I think that's where we have the honorable vessels versus the dishonorable ones. And so let's pick it up there in our study, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and have somebody read uh, verses 20 and 21. Who wants to read that? Yeah, go ahead, Greg. You mean useful. Useful. Yeah, <laughs> that's okay. We don't want to be unuseful. Useful. Yeah, 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 there you go. Okay, thank you. Uh, so note, uh, the true church is metaphorically, I think in verse 19, uh, been described as the solid foundation. And uh, <clears throat> the solid foundation of God stands. I mean, the true church stands. But uh, in contrast to the true church, you have the large great house, which I think represents Christendom in general. And in Christendom, you know, just as far as professing Christians in general, there's a lot of things involved in the, in the great house in, in terms of Christendom in general. Uh, you have weak Christians, you have strong Christians, and then you have professors who are not even real Christians. Uh, you, you have a lot of things involved in the, in the great house. And so I think he moves from the metaphor of the solid foundation which stands, the true church. But then you have the great house. Rep there's a lot of things represented in it, and you'll see as we move through even the verse here, a lot of various uh, descriptions here. But uh, note, uh, I've got Marvin Vincent here, a quote from Marvin Vincent. He says, uh, uh, as themalios, uh, the foundation, it's a word for foundation, indicates the inward, essential character of the church, the true church, uh, oikia, House exhibits its visible outward aspect. The mixed character of the church points to its, its greatness. I think he's right there in terms of what's really being described as we, as we continue on here. Um, in the big house, <laughs> that's not the right big tent, right? <laughs> in the big tent of professing uh, Christendom, uh, Christendom there are two general categories of vessels. There are the saved and the unsaved, yes? However, I think in the context here, Paul is specifically presenting a contrast of false teachers and true teachers, as seen in the previous paragraph. The issue is kind of workers. Uh, the valuable are those who rightly divide the word. The dishonorable are those who lead people astray, overthrowing the faith of some. False teachers are ultimately proven to be uh, dishonorable and worthless, they have no lasting value because they teach error. And again, you know, God knows uh, those who are his. Sometimes it's kind of hard to know, you know, is this a person who's just messed up in some error? Or are they not even saved? I mean, ultimately, God is the final judge and makes the final call on everybody here. But uh, note as he works his way through here, we have some clear contrasts, right? We have uh, in this great house, which I am calling Christendom in general, uh, there are uh, vessels of gold and silver. Well, now you have a, a vessel of gold and a vessel of silver. Hey, those both have some value, right? little quality difference. You want the gold one or you want the silver one? Well, they're both pretty good, right? 
You hand me a vessel of silver, I won't be totally disappointed. I mean, I say, okay, I could have took the gold. You could have given me the gold. Both are good, but there's still a, a lesser degree of value as seen in the silver versus the gold, right? And then uh, we knock that down a notch. Then you have, have wood and clay, so varying degrees of value and importance here. Gold and silver is not to be confused with wood and clay, Right? So there's, there's varying degrees here. But I think then you have the ultimate contrast between some for honor and some for dishonor. Well, that really is a, is a major contrast. He's, he builds up to this. So all kinds of degrees of stuff within Christendom. But then you come down to the honorable and the dishonorable. And uh, that, that's uh, the contrast, I think, where he, he builds on that because he goes on to say in verse 21, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, what's the latter? Well, the dishonorable. It's the last thing he said. And so I don't think he's saying, hey, separate from all the, you know, make sure you separate from, from the silver. No, no, no. Uh, there's some value there. It's maybe not as good a quality as we'd like. Uh, there might be something there that needs to be, you know, purified and purged or whatever. But uh, he's making a point here about the latter. If anyone cleanses himself from the latter. And I think really what he's talking about is a separation from false teachers here in the, in the context. If anyone cleanses himself from the latter, uh, defiling false teachers, cleanse yourself from these. Uh, you, you don't want to be compromised by false teaching, false teachers. Uh, the idea here is that's not healthy. It's, it's not for your spiritual well-being. If you want to be usable, you need to cleanse yourself from these uh, false teachers. I really think we talk about biblical separation here from compromise, from false teachers and false teaching. Uh, a person's relationship to the truth really is parallel to how usable they are for God. Uh, people that are compromised, uh, they're not real usable. Now, there's degrees of compromise, uh, but uh, here the dishonorable, I think, ultimately is really representative of the false teachers. So, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, the dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honor, a vessel for honor. That's what we want to be. We want to be an honorable vessel that can be usable for the master. Uh, Stephen Cole talks about, <clears throat> can you imagine uh, being a guest at a wealthy home where you're seated around a magnificent table? The kitchen door swings open and the cook comes out with a garbage pail and starts dishing the food out of the pail. Even so, God isn't going to use dirty lives to serve the good news of Christ to the world. Uh, yeah, we want to be honorable, clean vessels. We want to be, uh, and that's where we uh, cleanse himself. You don't want to be dirtied up by false doctrine. I mean, we're not usable in that condition. Uh, we want to be uh, cleansed from the latter, uh, the dishonorable, compromised, uh, so that we can be a vessel uh, for honor. And then he says, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Note, uh, cleanses himself and sanctified. The word sanctified means to be set apart. Again, set apart from false teachers and false teaching. Uh, we don't want that to uh, be defiling us. Uh, we want to be useful to God. And so we need to be cleansed from that false teaching. We need to be set apart uh, to the truth. 
uh, sanctified and useful. There's the idea, useful for the master. The word master here is despotes, uh, which is the idea of despot, uh, which is the idea of one who has absolute authority, uh, an absolute master, uh, which is what our Lord is. Uh, Hebert, uh, Hebert says, Edmund Hebert, the word master is despotis uh, and means one who has undisputed ownership and control. It speaks of our sovereign Lord who has final ownership of and alone determines the use of his vessels. Yeah, he's in charge of the church. He's building his church and he's in charge of everything in the church. Uh, he is the absolute master and we want to be useful for the master. Uh, prepared for every good work, whatever God has for us to do. Uh, you know, if we're set apart from false teachers and false doctrine, then we can be usable. Uh, we're useful for our master and for whatever, for whatever good work he has for us to do. So the bottom line here I see uh, is uh, if you want to be use usable, uh, you have to be in a position of no compromise, uh, as far as glaring error, I mean, he's, and the illustration he used is they were saying the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some, and so forth in that context. So we're talking serious uh, error involved there. Um, we don't want to be compromised by this. Well, we have noted in chapter 2, uh, if you want to be uh, crowned, uh, just like an, uh, an athlete who's in a, in a competition, you have to compete according to the rules, verse 5. If you want to be approved, you have to rightly divide the word of truth, verse 15. And now, uh, if you want to be useful for the master, you have to be living a set-apart life in terms of false doctrine and false teachers. So we kind of see a threefold emphasis here in the chapter in terms of what's involved as far as honoring the Lord and, and serving God in an honorable way. All right, any other thoughts before we go on? No? No? Okay. <laughs> All right, let's have somebody read verses 22 and 23. Who wants to read that? Verse uh, 22 and 23. Dwinette? Okay. <clears throat> and all God's people said, Amen. <laughs> uh, verse 22. Uh, set up. Be set apart from these uh, dishonorable vessels. In context, I think, be those that are teaching error. But then he has a more personal word to say to Timothy here, too. Remember, we're talking, I think, about false teachers. And, and they really like to mix it up in terms of debate. And uh, he's saying, uh, flee also youthful lusts. Now, uh, in terms of uh, fleeing youthful lusts, uh, you know, we know uh, we are to be separate from false teaching. We, that's the emphasis here in those first two verses. But uh, now he talks about youthful lusts, harmful lusts. Run, run from them. Um, and when we think about uh, uh, fleeing these youthful lusts, it's in the present tense. It's to be an ongoing reality. You are to constantly be fleeing from, from youthful lusts. Now, it's interesting. Timothy was uh, probably considered youthful. Most people think he was probably about in his 30s. And uh, you, weren't, you were considered young in those days until you were 40. So, you know, maybe mid-30s, they think, Timothy. So they think this certainly was kind of directed at Timothy. 
uh, in a very uh, specific way. Uh, the word lust can be used in either a good way or a bad way. Often it's used in a negative way, simply uh, in intensive desires or passions, uh, that idea. And certainly uh, is used in a, in a negative way here. Flee also youthful lust. Now, when we think about youthful lust, what kind of lust do we commonly think of in relationship to youth? Well, we think about sexual things, and I think that's true, but that's not the only thing that can be in view here, I don't think. Um, it can be a number of things that uh, would enter in here. Uh, youthful lust could also include a variety of other things such as pride, ambition, anger, money, fame, pleasure, self-will, impatience, uh, levity, intolerance, being argumentative. I think in context, this one maybe figures in bigger, big here. Contentious, in, in impulsiveness, and so forth. So a lot of things. You know, he, he doesn't specifically mention sexual lust. Okay, maybe, maybe, uh, but it's not the only thing. Uh, and uh, notice what I say here. In Psalm 25, 7, David prayed, Do not remember the sins of my youth. He does not tell us specifically what these sins were. Scripture records David's sexual sin as happening later in his life. So David may well have primarily had something else in mind. In the context of Psalm 25, David immediately goes on to say this. Psalm 25, uh, do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions, according to your mercy. Remember me for your goodness uh, sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. Because of David's double emphasis on humble that follows sins of my youth, many think David is talking about youthful brashness. Well, that could very well be. Uh, you know, it is a tendency of, of young people to, to wrestle with this, right? Uh, Mark Twain said, when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in, in seven years. Uh, teenagers, tired of being hassled by your stupid parents, act now, move out, get a job, pay your own bills while you still know everything. Uh, you know, it is kind of true. Uh, I, I was certainly true for me. I mean, when I was a young man, it was like, yeah, the, the old fogies, they didn't know anything. Now I look back and say, wow. <laughs> and uh, I think that just is probably uh, indicative of youthful lusts. Uh, you know, a lot of things in are in there, like I say, not, not only that, but certainly that as well. And in context, uh, you know, it has a lot to say about this whole issue of being argumentative. In particular, Paul may... Uh, well be especially concerned about youthful striving about words because he mentions this issue in verse 14, in verse 16, in verse 23, and again in verse 24. So when I'm looking at the context, this is a real major concern that, that Paul has as he's addressing young Timothy. Stay away from this, stay away from this, stay away from this. And then right in the middle of that context, he throws in this flee youthful us. So youth are especially prone to being prideful, argumentative, pridefully argumentative. Youthful tendency is to think, I know better, and be willing to argue to the death over things that don't really matter in light of eternity. Of course, when it comes to sound doctrine, there must never be any compromise. Still, Paul says to Timothy, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. Youthful passion wants to argue, but Paul says, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. So again, I think that is, in the context, a, a major emphasis here. All right, any other thoughts? We're right in the middle of the verse, but we can stop for thoughts if we have them. Yeah? Yeah, I was thinking about it. You, you mentioned that much. I thought you said it's youthful lust, plural. Remember not the sins of my youth. 
Right. For sure. And you know, I think you, you can always commit the sins of the youthful lusts. <laughs> Don't have to be just young. And we talk about some people never grow up either, right? <laughs> well, none of us, we're all in process, for sure. But uh, flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness. So there's a true prong strategy here, right? Uh, you want to flee, but you also want to pursue so there's some things you want to flee, you want to run from them, but then you want to pursue other things. And he mentions these. Uh, and by the way, this word pursue is an intensive word like uh, when you would be on, on the hunt, uh, when the hunter is hunting uh, an animal or something. I mean, it'd be an intense hunt. Pursue in that sense, intensively. Pursue righteousness. Of course, that is what is right before God. Uh, faith. Um, you know, we think about faith. Faith is uh, dependence upon God, taking God at his word. Could also be, under, be understood here as, as faithfulness, uh, the, the quality of faithfulness. Uh, love is the intense word for love. Agape seeks the other person's highest good. Don't be self-oriented. Uh, be seeking others' highest good. Uh, peace, uh, harmonious relations. Uh, you know, we want to seek peace with all men if possible. We want to get along. Uh, pursue this. Uh, pursue these things, righteousness, faith, love, peace. And then he says, uh, with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Isn't that interesting? Uh, he says, do this in fellowship. Uh, do this with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Do this in the context of the community. And say, well, you know, find yourself in isolation and kind of carry out your, your sanctification process there. No. Uh, with those in the context of accountability, in the context of uh, encouragement and edification where others can help you and, and, and uh, encourage you on, with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. It's interesting. Uh, call on the Lord is, uh, seems to be a parallel back to verse 19 where he talks about, uh, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Here, uh, with those who call on the Lord. You know, this is indicative of true believers. We call on the Lord. Uh, we recognize uh, uh, the Lord for who he is as, as Lord. We call, by the way, it's even in salvation, right? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, Romans 10, 13. We just start there. I mean, this is indicative of true believers from the very beginning. We recognize the Lord for who he is. We call on him to save us. We recognize him for who he is as the, as the God who can save. And uh, then uh, this is what... Uh, defines the, the true believer. It's a mark of a true believer, calling on the Lord. But then he says, with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart, they're sincere, versus the dishonorable, uh, the dishonorable vessels who play games, who compromise God's truth. Uh, be there in fellowship uh, with those who call on the Lord out of, a, out of a pure heart. Nurture that kind of a close fellowship with, with sincere believers uh, who are the real deal, who are honest to God in their faith. So in verse 21, we have an emphasis on uh, separation from evil associations. When he uh, cleanses uh, himself uh, from these dishonorable vessels, set apart from them. Uh, so separation, verse 21. Verse 22, on the other hand, a close fellowship uh, with sincere believers. So you see both uh, emphasis, biblical separation from evil associations, but close fellowship with the genuine who call on the Lord out of a, out of a pure heart.
In our spiritual walk, there are people to avoid, compromisers, false teachers, and there are people to get close to who are serious about God. These people have pure hearts evidence in a pure walk with God. Uh, they are the real deal. This is where you want your fellowship to be. All right. Any other thoughts before we go on to uh, verse uh, 23? Anything else? We must be covering it very thoroughly tonight. Anyway, that's all good. 23. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. So, Again, this is the third time in this chapter where he has emphasized staying away from these vain arguments and these, these word battles. Uh, he says this in verse 14, verse 16, and now here again in verse 23. This is a major concern that Paul has in this whole context of chapter 2. So we maybe should take, uh, really take note of that. It's really easy to get in these word battles. You ever done Facebook? You know, uh, you know, it doesn't take you very long to graduate from, okay, we're going to duke it out here over nonsense, to, to just keep scrolling, if, if, if you even need to do it at all. But uh, uh, avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. Foolish, moronic, stupid, stupid disputes, stupid arguments. Amazing people can fight over sometimes the stupidest things. And the world is all about a fight. I mean, that's what the world does constantly. Just, I mean, whatever. We, we just, let's, <laughs> got whole, people make their living at this. It's what they do. But not us as Christians. We should not be known for, for Maronish uh, type arguments. Uh, ignorant, uh, you know, sophomoric. Uh, sophomoric is, you know, just uh, lacking wisdom, immature, uh, foolish. The word foolish is the Greek word moros, from which we get our English word moron. Uh, it means dull, sluggish, or stupid. Avoid stupid arguments. Don't get into them. You know, sometimes the smartest thing you can do is just walk away, right? Just walk. I mean, okay, we don't need to go there. Uh, the word ignorant means untrained, uninstructed, or undisciplined. Avoid disputes over ignorant speculations. You know, things that nobody really knows, but let's argue about it. Let's get a huge fire going here. <laughs> That'll solve something. Yeah. These kinds of arguments are senseless and useless. These kind of disputes are fostered by minds that have an untrained, undisciplined habit of thinking. They flit from novelty to novelty. They, they just like to argue don't go there. Don't join them. All they do is generate strife. And I think, again, uh, this is, you're especially, maybe if you're 35, you're especially more, a little more prone to this when you're 65, like Paul. <laughs> maybe, maybe the useful lust enters in here a little bit. I, I think perhaps so. Well, don't argue with people. You know, you don't argue people into the kingdom. You say, well, we're really going to, we're going to sit and we're going to argue this until you're, until you're there. <laughs> Probably not going to happen right? There's that old saying, a person convinced against his will is of the same opinion still, right? How many times has somebody really argued you into, uh, you know, kind of beat you over the head with something until you came around? Does that work with you? Well, probably not. Uh, you're probably not going to be very effective that way. Sometimes some, some people almost have the idea, like, you know, you have these, these policemen have these dogs, and they sick the dogs on the people, 
Sometimes Christians almost think that's the way we should attack. Sick the dogs on! Oh, man, we're taking them down! I don't think so. I don't think that's how God works. And he'll go on there. He's going to build on this as we go on to the next, the next verse. Uh, knowing that they generate strife. You know what? You have, you have emotional word battles in this kind of a situation. I mean, you've got full-blown fights going here. Now, word battles uh, over novel things, over ignorant things, ignorant disputes where nobody really knows what the answer is, but let's duke it out. Um, no, that's not the way to go. Uh, we don't want to be like that. And that's where he goes now as he builds on this in verses 24 through 26. All right, any other thoughts on those verses? We don't want any heated disputes here, but... (laughs) Oh, that's bad. All right, 24 through 26. Who wants to read that? Yeah, Uh, Jeff. Jeff had his hand up. Okay, thank you. The servant of the Lord, uh, more literally, uh, the slave, doulos, the slave of the Lord. Um, The slave, doulos, had no will, this is Homer Kent, had no will of his own, but was expected to be governed by his master in every respect. Surely an apt metaphor for God's ministers. It's good to remember, you know, I'm not here for my own ego. I'm not here for self, for a selfish. I serve the master. I'm here for him. The servant of the Lord must not quarrel. As used here in context, many believe that the slave of the Lord is actually an official designation of a Christian leader. Uh, good leaders must realize they are but slaves serving the master. That goes with the gentle, patient, humble demeanor that is called for in dealing with, with opposition. I think that's uh, true. You know, you go on into the verse a little further. It talks about able to teach. We know one of the qualifications for elders, they have to be able to teach. So I do think uh, especially targeted here is uh, leaders, application across the board, of course. But uh, the, the servant or the slave of the Lord, the word Lord means master, uh, slave, master relationship. A lot of metaphors uh, in, in terms of our relationship with the Lord. But one of them is, uh, you know, he bought us with his blood. We belong to him. He's the master. Uh, we are his, his slaves. Uh, we saw a despot earlier, uh, absolute master. And uh, the emphasis in context here, you want to be a useful slave? Stay away from the word battles. This isn't the effective strategy. Con- in contrast to that, servant of the Lord must not quarrel. You know, want to wrangle. Uh, let's get into it. And let's battle it out. No, uh, don't get into those kind of word battles and those disputes. They're they're counterproductive. The servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. Gentle to all. Has a gentle, gracious demeanor about about him. Um, Approachable. Mild is the idea. Um, And this is in contrast to being harsh and rough. Be gracious. Be gracious. 
Must not quarrel, but be gracious. And notice it says gentle to all. And in context, it seems especially in relationship to very difficult people. Difficult people. Um, that man, we're, we have our throw down here. Uh, here's the spirit we bring to it. Gentle to all. Including, seems, difficult people. Gentle to all. It seems that all means all here. I don't know how you get around it. Uh, gentle to all. Uh, apt, uh, able to teach. Uh, and again, I think here, yes, uh, we have to have ability to teach. But I don't think that's the real emphasis here. In context, I think it's, it's really dealing with a, a spirit which enables you to be in a position to communicate truth in a, in a teaching kind of way. Uh, you know, you can be right about something, and maybe you're going to win the battle, but you're going to lose the war. How far are you going to get with that person? Boy, I, I wish I had a lot of do-overs in, in terms of my youth, honestly. Uh, I, I really do not think I was wise a lot of times, even with my own family. Uh, you know, I guess we'd all like to start mature, right? We'd all like a few do-overs, unless you are exceedingly mature from the very beginning, which probably not true. But uh, able to teach, able to teach. Uh, Moody has this, uh, able to teach emphasizes disposition as much as it does skill. I think that's right in context. It is possible to teach right things in, in a wrong way. Yeah, I think that's true. I read of a woman who on her job had the responsibility of taking calls from irate customers. She was so successful in calming them down and reaching resolution that they inquired of her secret. She said that the louder the customer gets, the softer and more gentle her tone gets. The louder they get, the quieter she gets. There's great wisdom here, don't you think? It's not easy to do that, by the way. <laughs> they get loud, you want to get loud. Uh, no, go soft. They get loud, you go soft. It's just contrary to, to what our nature is, really. But, uh, yeah, that's kind of the spirit here. Uh, gentle, and in that context, able to teach. Uh, the goal is to win people in an effective way. And how do you win people? Well, this is a, a better strategy. Uh, patient. Well, how about that? Patient. That's a challenge, right? Patient. Be patient with people. And Paul really lays it on thick in the first Thessalonians, right? Wait, well, exhort your brother and warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak. Be patient with all. Be patient with all people. Everybody needs patience, I guess. We want to bear with... Really, the idea here of patient is... This is kind of an unusual word. It's only used, I think, maybe one time in the New Testament... Uh, it's the idea of bearing evil treatment without resentment. This is kind of when you're under fire and uh, you're patient. You're not, you're not responding in the flesh. Okay, I'll take you out. No. <laughs> no. Uh, no retaliation is the idea. And then he says, he builds on this, in humility correcting those who are in opposition. Yes, they need to be corrected. But what's the spirit that we are to go about? Well, in, in humility, this whole context here in verses 24 through 26 is really uh, emphasizing a strategy of winning those who are in error. What's the strategy? Uh, how, how, do we, how do we go about it? Um, we don't want to compromise the truth, but we want to have a, the right spirit. No compromise, but, but the right spirit in humility. 
coming from a humble uh, disposition. Uh, correcting those who are in, in opposition. Now, this kind of assumes that they're open to discussion, right? I mean, if they just want to have a quarrel, you stay away from that. So I already said that. You know, we're not going there. <laughs> I'm not going to get into the fight with you. So this kind of assumes that, that you're coming in with a spirit that, that they're, they're willing to listen to where you can bring some correction uh, in, a, in a humble sort of way. Not an arrogant, hey, I'm the authority, listen to me. You know, let me hammer you. No, no, no. You come with a gentle, uh, humble spirit. That's the, that's the idea here. It doesn't mean we don't take stands. We do, right? Uh, there is a balance regarding belligerent rebels. We are to be gentle, patient, and humble. But we are to not just endlessly allow them to wreak havoc in the body either. In fact, earlier in verse 21, what did he say? Emphasis on cleansing oneself from these types. Sanctification, set apart from them. If they persist, they are to be refuted and rejected forcefully. Uh, Titus, three, avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Same emphasis we have here in our study. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is, is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. So again, you know, there's, there's a bad, you don't just say, well, you know, we never really take a stand here because we're gentle and uh, we're gracious. Uh, no, there's a place where you do take a, a strong stand. Uh, we're really talking about the, the spirit of things. Here again in Titus 1, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, talking about elders here, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Uh, there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers, deceivers, especially those of circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped. They can't just wreak havoc in the body, subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. So they, they need to be shut down. And there, so there's, a, there's a, uh, a place for that too here. But he's really talking about the spirit of things here. Uh, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If at all possible, the goal is to win them. And I think you're talking about people that are open to discussion. Uh, we, can, we can have some uh, dialogue here. And if at all possible, we want to we win them and correct them in that spirit. And then he says, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. Now, that's interesting how this is stated. If God perhaps will grant them repentance. Well, why didn't God just grant them repentance? We'll be all done with it, right? They're, they're already on our side. <laughs> it's interesting here. We have that tension between human responsibility, which has really been emphasized up to this point, and also uh, divine sovereignty. I mean, God works in hearts. Uh, repentance is literally the idea to have a change of mind where one aligns with the truth. And uh, God may work. God perhaps will grant them repentance. God work in their hearts to that end. And, of course, that's the, the goal so that they may know the truth. Again, so they may align with the truth. Uh, again, Stephen Cole says this. How do we know if the person truly repents? Well, Paul says that he will come to the knowledge of the truth. This means more than mental assent. It points to experiential knowledge, evidenced by a change of thinking and behavior. His life will conform to God's word both in doctrine and practice. I think repentance is a, it's a major adjustment in your thinking to where you now align with the truth, starting with the truth of, of Jesus Christ. And, uh, that, and that's the goal. We want to win people uh, in, to that to, to repentance where they, where they know the truth. All right, any thoughts there before we go to the last verse here? Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it is general. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, there's lots of places where even believers are called upon to repent. Christ to the churches, the seven churches in the Revelation and so forth. So, yeah, um, certainly, you know, we got to we go back to verse 19. The Lord knows those that are his. Sometimes they're believers, sometimes they're not. Sometimes we don't know. You know, how, where is this person really? They're really off track. So I think there's some broad application here. Um, it's not totally as specific as we might like. But uh, you go on to verse 26. Clearly these people are in bondage to Satan, right? Uh, you go on to verse 26. Uh, and that they may uh, come to their senses. Uh, I would back up there too. Lots of times Paul uses knowledge of the truth almost in reference to the gospel. You know, uh, the, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So that certainly would be, you know, maybe front burner almost, but I think there's other application here too, as I will show in verse 26 as well. So, but that they may uh, come to their senses uh, and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So uh, these people clearly uh, can't think clearly, right? Uh, I mean, that they may come to their senses. They're in satanic bondage, uh, which is an interesting uh, description here. Um, these people are to be pitied in that sense. I mean, the devil is having his way with them. Uh, and in repentance, they, they escape, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. They're bound in Satan's trap. We're talking about spiritual warfare here. And uh, it's a truth war. Uh, named devil means slanderer. Having been taken captive by him to do his, his will. Uh, we do uh, see here, um, we should note that this same phrase, the snare of the devil, is used in reference uh, to the potential hazard of an unqualified elder in 1 Timothy 3.7, which would, of course, apply to a believer. So a believer in a qualified sense can certainly fall into the snare of the devil, which is kind of what you were asking about. So I think there is some application here. I mean, it's not like, uh, well, believers can never fall into the snare of the devil. I think they can, uh, in a sense. And yet, some of these false teachers, it's like, are they even saved? Yeah, very questionable. Um, so, yeah, uh, let's wrap up here. i got a few slides to finish out here. Um, Paul wants Timothy to be useful for the master in every good work. Therefore, the emphasis in this section, uh, 2.20 through 26, is that he live a life of no compromise, no compromise on doctrine, no compromise on his associations, and no compromise in his lifestyle. And yet at the same time, he is to be gracious towards those in opposition, always with the goal of winning the lost to the Lord. And uh, let's see here. Uh, that's a difficult challenge, uh, to live a consistent life of no compromise, and at the same time, live a life of consistent graciousness. That is winsome. That is powerful. That is Christ-like. That is being an honorable vessel before God and one that he can effectively use for his purposes. we got one more slide here. The name Timothy is made up of two Greek words which literally mean God-honoring. Paul, in effect, was encouraging Timothy to live up to his name. As Christians, we are those who name the name of the Lord and hopefully are among those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart and thus serve as vessels of honor to the glory of God. Uh, that is the goal. We want to be uh, honorable vessels, uh, serving the Lord. And how do you do that? Well, 
You flee certain things related to evil associations and false teaching, and you pursue uh, righteousness and, and all the things that goes with that. All right, uh, any other thoughts as we wrap up here tonight? All right, if not, let's go ahead and uh, share some prayer items, prayer sheets.